reading today from Ephesians, uh, the first uh, chapter, verses 1 through 14. This is so wonderful because it shows us who we are and what we have in him, if we would just believe it and walk in it and find victory through it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with whom, with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be praise of his glory. And you also, we included in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked on him with a seal, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. And may God just sear this into your hearts. Miss Norma, I love it when you read and pray. Makes me think you might just believe it. I want to start where the passage starts. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This sermon in this 
portion of the book, and this entire book is a letter. It is a pastoral, uh, pastorally written letter, uh, a, a, a letter of admonishment and care for his congregation that he served for three years. There's a beautiful story about how much he cared for this congregation for these years and built up elders and then left after that. It's in Acts 20. It's a giving of grace and peace. It's a, it's, a, it's a blessing, a good word, a reminder. And it is written to the saints, if you will, the followers of Jesus. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an explanation of the gospel, the good news of God. If we had been reading this in Greek and we had unrolled the scroll or the, the, the papyrus and had, had brought it out to us, we would have realized this morning that that was... Um, verses 3 through 14 is one sentence. Now, that's a run-on sentence. It's an opening outburst to this congregation. Some commentators describe it as a snowball tumbling down a hill, picking up volume as it descends, or a racehorse careening forward in full speed. I'd like to call it a tirade of tenderness or a rant about your redemption. The the point is that whoever was reading this the first time would be out of breath with what's true in here. Because it's a diatribe of the gospel, but it's a diatribe of the gospel for Christians. And that might sound a little bit odd to you, but this is, and this letter is written to explain the gospel Two Christians. The gospel for Christians. And um, I wonder if that does sound odd to you. If you, um, if you, what we're going to be doing in the next two weeks, it's either the longest sermon that I've ever preached, so I'm doing it in two weeks, or it is uh, the shortest sermon series I've ever preached, uh, and it's only two parts. So whatever floats your boat. But I'll, go, um, I'll go with the shortest uh, sermon series. That usually goes better around here. Um, Here's what's happening. He's in Ephesus, which is now present-day Turkey. It could be called Asia Minor. Uh, and this is Paul here. And Ephesus is one of the main centers of pagan worship, particularly the worship of Artemis, um, who is the great mother goddess. And they had a temple in honor of her. And if you know anything about ancient history, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. All right? And, uh, and into this pagan city, this church, and when I say pagan, please don't hear me say anything derogatory. I don't mean anything derogatory about that. I just mean pagan city. Um, Paul shares the gospel for those who already believe it. And I wonder how they responded. I mean, uh, I understand the gospel, Pastor Paul. I, I, uh, I had a mountaintop experience. I met Jesus on the road one time. I, when I was younger, I prayed the prayer. Uh, uh, this is kind of old hat. Uh, this is... This is good. I'm not sure it's news. You know, it's kind of old. Uh, others might be thinking, well, though, uh, though I came to Christianity later in life, I, I, listen, I, I'm trying to get the, get the fast track to some maturity. I'm not trying to go backwards. I need to know some deep, profound theological truths. Uh, I don't need to go get this kind of gospel straight thing again. Some might be thinking, man, Paul, what? The gospels for the non-Christians around us, you see how much money they're spending on Artemis and how much they spend their lives and are killing themselves literally over worship of Artemis. They just need to know that God loves them and, and we can move forward in that. This would be so much. Don't waste your time. 
Can you do a tent revival or something? We can outreach project, maybe get some t-shirts or something for the art, you know, you know, do this for other people. And as they're always in uh, Christian, um, uh, in, in gatherings, in Christian gatherings in the early church, the non-believers are there. And I wonder what the non-believers are thinking. Like, Paul, it, y- your people don't get what, you, what's going on here? I mean, I, I get the whole, you think that we're sinners and you think that Jesus loves us. And I don't, I don't know if I buy into any of that, but I do buy, but I am trying to get kind of a good philosophical take on how this thing works and see if it can better my life. That's probably who's there. That's probably some of the things they're thinking. And you as well. Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, whether you're overwhelmed with doubt or overjoyed, just tickled pink about how... Uh, how things are with you and Jesus, a fresh wind of the Spirit, if you will. If you're discouraged by your sin and weakness, or you're angry at God for yet another disappointment, or you're pleased with your circumstances or despaired with them, Paul's writing to us, and he wants to give the saints the gospel again. Let's turn to this one long run-on sentence and go through it. I want you to hear three things. Sought, got, and I couldn't come up with another rhyme, kept. Bought didn't work. I was trying. Sought, got, and kept. Remember, this is the gospel for Christians. And what Paul starts with in verse 4 is that you were sought after. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Or in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Or later in verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is a run-on sentence, and this sentence is as complicated and as difficult and as full of jam-packed as anything you can. And we could go and spend this entire time on the concept of predestination or being chosen and what that means. And I am part of, I'm a, uh, I'm a Presbyterian minister. I'm a Calvinist. I hold to uh, predestination. This is what I believe. But I don't want you to miss the other thing that's going on or the results of what that is going on. We could sit and talk about predestination all day. We can argue about it. We can fuss. We can talk about the idiosyncrasy of it and what it means to be in Christ and predestined and all that stuff. But here's the deal. You were wanted. You were chosen. You were wanted. Do you understand that? You were desired and therefore pursued. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world predestined according to the purpose of will, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the uh, counsel of his own will. You are wanted. I I need you. I I was trying to think of illustrations about what it means and what it feels like to be wanted. And the truth is, this side of glory, it's easier to think of the times and ways in which we are not wanted. You know experientially what it's like to be rejected better than you like know what it's like to be wanted. Another date where they talk about themselves the entire time. And I'm not just talking about first, second blind dates. I'm talking about the one you've been married to for 20 years. How about this? Men and women, both of you struggle here. 
married or not. I turn to pursue someone physically and I'm rejected again. Another longing that you have for deeper friendship, for marriage, for a uh, uh, relationship with your parents, relationship with your children. Another longing unmet. Another turned away experience where your mom left you or your dad was absent. We know what it's like to be unwanted. And the gospel proclaims this, that you are wanted, that you are desired, that you are sought after. I got an illustration from 610 Radio this week, and that's with Steve Smith. A lot of times Steve Smith is great for illustrations about losing your temper or something like that. Uh, Steve Smith is the, is, um, uh, is, the, is the receiver for the Carolina Panthers. But something's happened in this last year that his, um, uh, uh, in, in the conversation he was having with Mark with the C. James, or Mark, yeah, and Taylor Zarzar, um, you guys got to watch 610, oh, never mind, I'm, so anyway, he sounded so humble and so wonderful. And he was talking about how he doesn't do the Twitter and the Facebook stuff and he doesn't really get into the Hollywood kind of scene and stuff like that and how that's changed for him. And he said, look, I got three kids to raise. I got, I got to go. Be, my free time is their time now. And um, <laughs> you got to know who QCB is. But QCB gets on there and uh, QCB is uh, always Mr. Jokester, always laughing, always having a great time. And he gets real serious real quick. And he says, look, Steve, I, I, I just found out I have a teenage son. How do I rear my, I, I, what am I supposed to do? I know you have a teenager. What am I supposed to do? And literally, like, uh, the, the, the two guys that are, are kind of leading the show are, are like, really? You have a, what, what? This is like Oprah on Sports Talk Radio. And, uh, and he, he goes through it. He goes, and, and they get real serious with each other on, the, on back and forth. And Steve Smith says, Become a student of his world. Now, I started thinking about that. I thought that was great advice. And QCB was all thankful and all this other stuff. But what would it be like for your dad or your mom to be a student of your world? That, that, that you're sought after and that the things that matter to you matter to them. And they learn about it. To be sought like that, to be wanted, to be known. Literally, this superstar has time to learn about a 13-year-old's life and his struggles. And the gospel says, not to be too cheesy, Jesus Christ superstar does the same for us. But it's not that you're just wanted, because it's really important, and it's great, and it feels awesome to be wanted. But you need to know that you're also wooed, if you will. You're pursued. You're sought after and pursued, not just the desire in, but action taken. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or debts or sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. On verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of his time, for the fullness of time. You need to understand that God has actually prepared for his pursuit of you. That he's actually thought about it. He's purposeful. That he has a, a plan of, uh, that in the fullness of time, he would come after you in his wooing 
of you. And that in that wooing, you see this kind of language where you say, according to the riches of his grace, that's his mercy and love, where he lavishes it upon us. You get this kind of sense in which, I mean, wouldn't you want to date with someone who's lavishing uh, a, a, a grace and mercy upon you? Or this great little phrase that is um, at the end of four, but really should be part of five. Do you see that? It says, in agape, or in love, he predestined us for adoption. It wasn't that he just thought up, oh, you know, I'm really going to pursue this person because it'll make me really look good. Or uh, I'm going to pursue this person because they're going to be, uh, they're going to either be great for me or, you know, I just pity. No, there was something driving that pursuit. And it's the desire to lavish grace upon his people in love. He's motivated. God likes you. He loves you. He likes pursuing you. He loves redeeming you and calling you his own. It pleases him to do so. Look, Amanda and I just celebrated 15 years. And I love being loved by Amanda. I think she likes being loved by me too. But you know what's even better? After 15 years, she still likes me. And I still like her. That love-like distinction that we keep saying, you know, love can be like this commitment to someone who's really annoying. But you're both loved and liked in Christ Jesus. You're pursued and known. Loved and liked. Now listen, I want you to do something, and you're going to think I'm crazy, and I am. This is of the most difficult things that you can ever get in your noggin, that Jesus loves you and that he likes you. And I'm going to tell you to do something that's a little crazy, and that's this. Next time you're entering or leaving the shower or changing clothes, I want you to go in front of the mirror as is. And I want you to stand there. And I want you to think about being loved and liked by the king of the universe. I want you to look at your hands. I want you to look at your body with the scars of people who have abused you and the scars that are there because of your own neglect, your own self-abuse. I want you to look at yourself, whether there's too much of you or too little of you, whether your hair is receded fully or not, or you have a head full. And I just want you to know that you are both loved and liked by God. You have been sought after, wanted and wooed, just like that. Naked and unashamed. I dare you. Sought. Something about being sought, that's great you like people pursuing you but it ain't sought ain't good unless you get got right unless someone has the power of catching you not just wooing you but actually laying in the deal it's not that good of a deal right it's not that helpful blessed be the verse three says blessed be god the father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so he's actually saying that there's a there, there's a a movement that has happened and blessing is the place that we receive is the place as our new state that we are receivers of blessing and we are if you will got uh by this seeking god the one who wanted and wooed us he actually catches us 
And there's two, two kind of themes that are going through the scriptures in here. And uh, the one of them is that, that we are adopted, and the other one is that we are cleansed. And I want to just kind of push through this. Remember, it's one sentence, so we got to go back and forth and figure out how all these things are fitting together, or not figure out how they're getting together, but realize what's coming out uh, up at us. And one of the things he keeps going through is this adoption theme. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of, his, praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There's that beloved again, by the way. Or in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Now, I want you to experience this for a second. I want you to hear what, what, what happens is that, is that what, what what's, he's talking about here, both in this heir language and in this adoption language, is that we have a new identity in God. That, that we were slaves and orphans, and now we're sons and adopted children, free. Through adoption, he gives us all the rights, see the blessings of our Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heaven, all the rights, all the privileges, all the protection as belonging, belonging to his household and having his name. We become adopted sons and daughters of the Father and brothers and sisters and joint heirs with Jesus. Now, that can be kind of technical language. In, in, in Westminster Confession, whom I, what I love says it this way. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. That's a little shorter version of that. We are, uh, it's God's free grace, received into a number, and have all the right to all the privileges of being sons of God. Now, I want you to know something about Roman culture. The purpose in Roman culture for adoption was not for the child. It was for the family. When a paterfamilias had an estranged son, the dad, uh, the father, the paterfamilias had an estranged son or was not able to have a son, then he would adopt typically a slave or an orphan of some sort to become his son. Why? Not for the son, but so that the paterfamilias would have a line and it would preserve the family line. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is already the son. God's got a son. He wants us he wants more children, and so he pursues them. He's not motivated by his line. He's motivated by our good and his love for us, that we would be redeemed and changed. And this is why this, this idea in Scripture of adoptions all over the place. It was in Galatians, what we had read just a second ago, or it's in Romans here. It says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Listen, when a Roman was, a, was adopted, a, 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 there was a, it's kind of a three-way deal that happened. You had the, the paterfamilias, the dad or the, the father figure. You had the, sl- the slave, usually the orphan or son. That, uh, and, and, and unfortunately, it was almost always a son and almost never a daughter because the daughter couldn't hold the family line. So this is how little adoption was done for the care of the other person, but just for the family line. All right. And then you had the public or the publican that sat there and the three of them would sit there and there was a kind of a semi-formal uh, uh, action that would take place. And the slave uh, or, or the son, usually older, um, would, would come in in his slave garb and the paterfamilias would be here and the publican would be here. And they would ask the fa- they'd ask the paterfamilias, do what, 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 what uh, do you, will you receive him as a son? And he says, yes, you will. And then the, the, uh, the slave says, will you receive, will you, will you go to him as a, as a father? Yes. 
and the publican declares that to the whole. So that that's, that's kind of the formal function that occurs in that, that thing. And what happens is, is that all the debts of the slave are forgiven at that point. All the debts of the slave are coming because he has now a new identity and he actually comes over and becomes part of a new family. So it's adoption is tied to a, to a forgiveness of a debt. Adoption is tied to you being, uh, to being uh, without, any, without owing anybody anything. Adoption is tied to you being, to use the scriptures from this morning, holy and blameless, set apart and without blame before another person. And what, what, what's, what he's going out here and what he's, he's working through here is that in your adoption, you're also forgiven or cleansed. In verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Or in verse 7, most explicitly, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins or trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Adoption means forgiveness and cleansing. Do you know there's a study that shows that after people lie, they feel compelled, most, most people feel compelled to wash their hands? I've told you this story before about Method Soap. When they did their advertising campaign, by the way, Method Soap's really cool, nice little bottle, neat little bottle. It looks like it's all clean and everything like that, like soap should be, but, you know, it's kind of hip looking. And, and when they first started out, they uh, had a, um, a website that you could go to and there were two sets of hands there. And you could write on the hands things you did wrong. And then you'd hit the, send, uh, you'd hit the button, and it would put the hands under the, put soap on it, put the hands under it, and clean them away. It was pretty cool. I did a couple things like that, you know, and I was, I was putting stuff in and all that other stuff. And then I read an article a little later that said that people started getting carried away. Someone said, I had another affair with my wife. And then someone said, uh, against my wife, and someone said, I killed a man today. And quickly, Method had to take it all offline. This is, good. This is too much. This is ridiculous. This is, you know, because it had a little ticker of all the ones that were going through. And they're like, this is unintended consequences for what we've done. We were trying to do something kind of funny and cool and, uh, you know, just kind of wash your hands of the situation. But what they came up against is people's desperate need to be forgiven for things to be wiped away. And Method does not have the power, ability, love, or strength to do it. Only Christ Jesus does. See, we have sins that are bigger than, um, you know, uh, I, was, I accidentally uh, turned, cut somebody off in traffic. We need a Lord, one who has, from the foundations of the earth, thought about us, even amidst our most gross and heinous sins, to love us. And we have one in Christ Jesus. Because he's got us. He has adopted us. He's forgiven us and cleansed us from all unrighteousness. I was reading an article about, um, do you know who uh, Joe Esterhaus is, by chance? He, uh, he wrote Showgirls. He's a screenplay writer. He also wrote Basic Instinct. And he tells the story of a conversion experience that he had. Uh, uh, and he, um, he tells the story of how uh, this new identity worked for him. He was uh, drunk once again. He had been uh, smoking since he was eight years old, smoking pot since about 13 and drinking all that time. He has about 57 years old. They had four kids. His, his life was in ruins and so was his marriage. And he started breaking down and crying. 
And he writes like this. He says, why did God save the life of a man who has trash lampooned and marginalized him for most of his life? Why did he take the time and the trouble to rescue me? It certainly wasn't because I had written Best Basic Instinct in Showgirls, right? Was it because my wife had four little boys and we were trying to raise them? Well, possibly. And this is what I think is really funny. A good screenwriter. Or was it because of God's divinely imp- impish sense of humor? What is the desire to change me into a new me? Who you? He thought he, he pretends that God's talking. Who you? You're praying? After everything you've done to break my commandments and every nasty, unfunny thing you've said about me and my followers, and now you're sobbing? Praying? Asking me to help you? Yes. That's good. But you need to know this, God says back to him in his, in his mind. My help includes an obliteration of your old self. The infamous you. You'll wind up turning your life inside out. You'll, like, you'll wind up stopping your excesses. You know what's going to happen to you. You're going to end up like carrying the cross down on church on Sunday. I make all things new. I love this kind of statement about it because he's saying, he's, he's going, you know what? It's true. I have a new identity. I'm no longer in the family of darkness, but now I'm in a family of light. And this isn't just about the excesses of his life. This is about what it means and who you are and what, what it means to know your adoption and your forgiveness of sin. Not only are you loved and liked, you're forgiven and cleansed, and you're made part of a new family. Y'all, this matters for Christians, not just non-Christians. This matters for us because uh, instead of... Uh, first going to discouragement and anxiety or prayerlessness, we can actually go to our Father and say, you, you have me, Daddy, help me. I don't understand. This is, this, is, this is perplexing to me. Instead of being preoccupied with yourself and your circumstances, you start thinking about Him or thinking about others in the midst of things and not just all about your own little pity party. You, you, you don't have to deny that you can be a train wreck sometimes or that you sin or that you can be curt or that you can actually just acknowledge and open it and say, yeah, that's, that's me. That's me. I'm, I'm, I'm so loved that I can tell you my weaknesses and my faults. You don't have to complain all the time. You can actually be thankful for how your life is. You don't compare yourself to others. You honor others because they're great. Because it's not about you. And you don't blame shift and criticize and gossip. You listen carefully to people and ask questions and, and encourage them and think about them. You don't have to win every argument or every situation. A mark of adoption is a security that we cannot imagine. You are sought, and you are got, and again, you are kept. Look at the last two verses, the kind of finale of the sentence. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We are sealed with the promise of the Spirit and a guarantee of our inheritance. Not only are we sought and got, we're kept, guaranteed. The from the foundation of the earth plan is not one, just one that seeks us, not just one that gets us, 
but one that keeps us until the end. This is supremely important for, for, for all of us. Because sometimes we think about God kind of coming in and doing some type of change, which is really cool, and then kind of just leaving us be. And sometimes we feel like that because we're not progressing spiritually like we want to. But it's a lie. God is not interested just in the dating or the wedding. He likes being married to you. It's not just the titillating feelings of courtship that he's about. He likes the 30, 40, 50 years of being with you. That's our Lord. He keeps us and he's not going anywhere. He's vowed to do so. This plan that ends up in the fulfillment of all time, all this stuff is how he treats and cares about you. There are no honeymoon blues with the Lord. He's still happy. He's still happy to be with you. And his love is guaranteed by himself, God, the Holy Spirit. God himself is the guarantee of that. If God is true, he keeps you. If God's a liar, he doesn't. Everything he is, everything he has, is given to us in an inheritance one day. No fine print. No, it's insurance without a deductible. No fine print. Y'all, this keeps us off the performance treadmill. This keeps us from having to work harder and harder and harder to be more Christian, if you will. This keeps us, um, from, from, uh, keeps us with some energy for fighting the depression that we face all the time uh, because we know that our good, the, the goodness isn't based, his goodness and his, the guarantee of our lives isn't based on how we feel on any given time. This keeps us from finding our identity in our work or finding our identity in our bodies, whether we eat too much or too little. It keeps us from having perfectionists. We have to get everything right all the time because we're being kept to the end. This keeps us from, from, um, from pursuing the, uh, the acceptance in another person's arms when we're not supposed to. Because we know we're accepted and we're kept by our Lord. He's married to us and he likes it. And it again makes us radical lovers of other people. And we're not fearing other people and, and sizing up our relationships with some type of cost-benefit analysis to see if it's worth pursuing someone or not. No, we can give our life away because we're guaranteed to the end. We don't have to struggle to be free. We can struggle because we are free. Two things. One, how does it all fit? It fits because nine times, eight directly and one other, this passage in one sentence uses the term in Christ. Union with Christ. United to Christ. You are in him. Through him, all these things. In love. There's even other, there's probably four or five more different. Every single verse besides verse uh, eight has in him or in Christ or through Christ in it. I mean, that, talk about your run-on sentence. The run-on sentence is to make it clear to you that we are kept in him, that we are, we are formed and shaped in him. And so when you finish up, uh, uh, so, so the basic idea of this is that, um, is that you need to know that he 
has, has, is almost like a bell jar. He, you, you're seeing through a bell jar, and the bell jar is Jesus. You're, it's over, and, he, and God sees you through Jesus to see who you are. We are united to him. And this unification comes from himself, comes from him. He's pursued us and sought us and got us, and he's keeping us because we're connected to him. Here's what I want you to do. When you, when you um, get in front of that mirror, I want you to read this. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the the praise of his glorious grace, which can with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. I dare you to do that. I dare you to do that and give yourself to believing it even a little bit. It changes everything. In closing, I, I, I just wanted to read you a story that I was reading. It was like one of those um, kind of NPR, this I believe things. And it was from John uh, Fountain, is a professor of journalism at uh, uh, University of Illinois. And uh, he writes for the Washington, uh, the Chicago Tribune and New York Times has written a couple books and all that stuff. And um, I just wanted to read this to you because it's about this identity, adoption, how it makes you go forward, what it does to a person's heart. Uh, and, I, and I give it to you. I would have sent it to you via email, but I just I had to preach, and so I figured I'd read this to you at the end, at the, in closing. You know what these this I believe are? They, they, they write like a very short, one-page kind of deal, and, and either celebrities or whatever, and, and so John uh, Fountain writes this. I believe in God. Not the cosmic, intangible spirit in the sky that Mama told me as a little boy always was and always will be. But the God who embraced me when Daddy disappeared from our lives, from my life at age four. The night police led him away from a front door, down the stairs, in handcuffs. The God who warmed me when we could see our breath inside our freezing apartment where the Gas was disconnected in the dead of another wind-whipped Chicago winter, and there was no food, little hope, and no hot water. The God who held my hand when I witnessed boys in my hood swallowed up by the elements, by the death, and by hopelessness, who claimed me when I left, when I felt like no man's son, amid the absence of any man to wrap his arms around me and tell me everything's going to be okay, to speak proudly of me, 
to call me son. I believe in God, God the Father, embodied in his son, Jesus Christ, the God who allowed me to feel his presence, whether by warmth that filled my belly like hot chocolate on a cold afternoon or that voice whenever I found myself in the tempests of life storms telling me, even when I was told I was nothing, that I was something, that I was his. And that even amid the desertion of the man who gave me his name and DNA and little else, I might find him as my sustenance. I believe in God, the God whom I've come to know as Father, as Abba, as Daddy. I've always envied boys as I saw walking hand in hand with their fathers. I thirsted for conversations that fathers and sons have about birds and bees and about nothing at all, simply feeling his breath, heartbeat, presence. As a boy, I used to sit on the front porch watching the cars roll by, imagining that one day one would park and the man would get out, would be my daddy, but it never happened. When I was 18, I could find no tears in that Alabama winter evening in 1979 as I stood finally face to face with my father lying cold in a casket, his eyes sealed, his heart no longer beating, his breath forever stilled, killed in a car accident. He died drunk, leaving me hobbled by the sorrow of years of fatherlessness. By then, it had been years since Mama had summoned the police to our apartment that night, fearing that Daddy would hurt her, hit her again. And now finally his alcoholism consumed what good there was of him until it swallowed him whole. But many years later, standing over my father's grave for a long overdue conversation, my tears finally flowed. I told him about the man I had become. I told him how much I wished he'd been in my life. And I realized fully that in his absence, I found another father. Or that he, God, the Father, found me. Amen.